Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's always great to be back at, at, uh, at my home church after traveling for, um, for a wee bit uh, recently. Almost everywhere I go to, to speak, in, uh, as I'm kind of leading up to it, something goes wrong. Um, that's a kind of normal for me. And, um, you know, if it hasn't gone wrong before I start, I'll come up and I'll trip over my own feet on the platform or I'll knock water all over myself or something, something always goes. I'm never sure whether that's God saying, shut up and uh, don't go up on the platform um, or, or whether it's just my own stupidity. But I'm sitting down there for so long, I'm thinking, God, nothing's gone wrong this morning. It's going to be a great morning. Nothing has gone wrong. Switched on my Surface Pro, and it came up, uh, Surface Pro, Microsoft will now update your PowerPoints. Um, so that's the end of that then. So we'll just be speaking to them as, uh, as they come up. What an amazing uh, letter the letter of James is, isn't it? It's kind of, it's confused biblical scholars for a long time, probably at least since the Reformation, where people argued about how, how powerful it was, whether even, whether it should be there, um, because it seemed to speak so much about how you work out your faith, and uh, Luther talked about it being a letter of works, um, actually, it's not a letter of works at all. It's a letter about how faith comes into the believer. And if, if we can't work out that faith, then there's probably something wrong uh, with our faith. Letter's probably written about 47, 48. So it's probably the earliest thing you've got in your Bible. Um, the earliest New Testament letter. Um, people uh, think that because there's an important... Um, Council called the Council of Jerusalem, which is Acts chapter 15. And most people think that's around about 49 or 50. And, um, and James was definitely a big part of the Council of Jerusalem, and he doesn't mention it in the letter. So people think the letter must be written before the Council of Jerusalem. So this is early, early stuff. And it's so important because it talks about the issues that the early Christians were dealing with, which actually are exactly the same issues as we are dealing with. Some things never change about our lives with Jesus. And some of the issues never change from generation to generation. You read through church history and you realize the one thing that we've never learned from church history is we've never learned anything from church history. We just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so can you picture in, in this kind of early, early church, probably 45, 46, AD 45, 46, meeting in a house, wrestling with the starts of persecution, the way in which they're being uh, pressurized by the culture round about them, uh, the culture which is one of, of division, separation, tribalism, all the sorts of things round about that are pressuring this little bunch of Christians who are trying to stay unique for Jesus. And James, with the authority of, I guess, his, his relationship with Jesus, his apostolic calling as, as a half-brother uh, of Jesus, writes to this church. And he wants to highlight both encouragements and some of the challenges that they face. And so I want to read the section that we're going to look at 
today, which is from James chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and they're going to be up on the screen. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, and a poor man is filthy. Old clothes also comes in. You show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Kind of uh, strong words, isn't it? Um, you can't kind of miss this. And, and this passage throws up a lot of things as, as James almost logically goes deeper and deeper into the implications of one action of the church. So here it is, really. Somebody draws up in the church car park in a kind of BMW 5 Series, lets it park itself. Isn't that cool where you can take your hands off the steering wheel and the car parks for you? Kind of, uh, I love that. Um, but it, it does that. The person steps out. They've got lots of gold on. They've got kind of um, Gucci shoes and a Hugo Boss suit. And they've got a really smart silk tie on. And they've got all the kind of rings and uh, all sorts of stuff on them. And they just look a million dollars because they've spent a million dollars to look like a million dollars. That's what you do, right? And so they come into the church and the church goes, ching, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be great. If he starts tithing here, we're laughing. Mission sorted for the year, new staff member, happy days. They kind of go up to him. He's welcomed by about a dozen people as he makes his way from here to here. He's, he's told about Alpha. He's told about everything. He's kinda, and then somebody says to him at the door, Jim's at the door, oh, come on in. Come on in and uh, pick a seat. We don't have any names on them, but if you sit in the middle, you get a better view and the sound's a wee bit better. Come and sit in here. Do you need anybody to sit with you? 
Um, anybody to talk to you through the service? Would you like me to get you a coffee while, uh, while we're there? We've got really good coffee. Um, and, and just show great favoritism. There's another guy comes in to the church. He's kind of walked around. He's got kind of holes in his uh, jeans. He's kind of uh, out of fashion with his trainers. His T-shirt looks kind of messed up, messy. His nails look kind of dirty. He doesn't smell all that great. He's not, he's not kind of using Suna Musk oils or, uh, or stuff of that sort. He's kind of, um, yeah, he's, he's somebody you might keep a wee bit of a distance from. Um, and he wanders in and nobody speaks to him. And one person says, oh, yeah, hey, hey, have a seat, but, you know, maybe up the back somewhere. And as people come in, they, they kind of walk past the poor person who's come in. But the person who seems to have it all together and who looks right and has a, a middle-class tone and, and middle-class voice and, and just looks as though they'll fit in is welcomed. And when we go for coffee at the end... The kind of poorer guy standing in a corner. And maybe somebody sees him on the fringes and feels, I've got a Christian duty to go and say hi to this person. Um, Whereas the other one is kind of crowded into conversation on the latest kind of celebrity master chef or whatever it is. And by the very nature of all of us as a church, we show favoritism to one as opposed to the other. And James says, don't you realize what you're doing by your very actions? You are turning the gospel upside down. The gospel which says Jesus loves each person equally. That everyone is of the same value. That Christ died for all. And yet somehow in the midst of it as a church, you are drawn towards some people and show favoritism to one as opposed to the other. Let's put the first slide up, can't we? So we all have favorites, don't we? That's, that's the thing. We all have, we all have favorites. There's um, Atlanta Falcons. They're the best American football team ever, ever, ever invented. And a blessing from God for those who are interested in American football. Um, my team, of course. Um, put your hands up if you're a St. Johnston supporter, if that's your favorites. Okay. Just want to let you know there is prayer ministry. Uh, at the end, o- over here, and we can break off some chains and deal with damaged emotions uh, at, at, the, at the end of that. Favorites are okay. All of us have favorites. But favoritism is not the same as having favorites. Favoritism, we're told, is when you show partiality to people and act differently towards them because of their external look rather than something internal. It's the way we behave to particular groups of people. That's what favoritism is. So favoritism, the Greek word, is, is very similar to, to words that you would use about segregation. And so some people will know that's uh, Rosa Parks. Um, 
up there. I, I spent time in, in Atlanta. I used to go quite a lot to Martin Luther King Center for Social Justice. Um, Atlanta, Rosa Parks, most people know, was, uh, was the woman, when she was a young woman, who uh, who'd got fed up with when somebody white came onto the bus, she had to get up out of her seat and go and stand up the back so a white person in the States could have the seat in the bus. And she refused to do it. And that's how she refused to do it. She ended up um, for a night in prison because of it. That's favoritism at its widest extreme. When we look at one group of people and say, we are for that group, we want that group, that group has special rights, this group doesn't. So favoritism becomes a really, really significant thing, doesn't it, in life? And James says, you can't have any part of it because it is diminishing the gospel, which is freedom and love and mercy and acceptance. And I think we understand that, and yet yet we're just drawn naturally sometimes to people we think will add more to what we're doing. James wants to go on beyond that, though, than just saying about favoritism. When he goes on, next slide, please. When he goes on to say, If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but not to the poor man, you stand there or sit at the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised? Wow. Wow. Perhaps one of the most radical statements in the letters of the New Testament is when James unpacks actually the teaching ministry of Jesus. See, uh, I, I picture in, in, in Mark, I, I picture a, a leper, poor, excluded, nobody allowed to go near them, can't go to worship, can't meet with anybody, and Jesus goes and touches him, and touches him. And in a touch, gives the person dignity and hope and life. I think of Jesus almost breaking every social taboo of blessing children, of speaking to women, of giving rights to people who had no rights. And then the early church, if you look at the early church, the early church, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 26, he says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are influential. The church is mostly made up of poor people and slaves. There are wealthy people in the church. But at the heart, the church was an upside down kingdom. Upside down. It is, if you like, a social revolution that Jesus came to bring a spiritual social revolution where those who had no place no status no worth no say no value suddenly encountered the god who had created them who breathed on them who touched them and said you are worth this you are worth me dying for you you are worth my blood you are worth my life 
And now there is neither rich nor poor, Gentile nor Jew, free nor slave, man nor woman. We are one in Christ, Galatians 3.26. So this miracle that Jesus has created was to lift the poor and give them status and value that they had never had before. The commentators sometimes say, so is James saying that rich people don't have a place in the kingdom? And clearly not that. But what he is saying is in the generosity of God, the people the world looked on as rubbish are looked on as gemstones and treasure by God. And that's the way the church should regard them as well. The gospel is for everyone. It's an upside down kingdom. Isn't that exciting? Um, Yeah. Well, I think it's exciting anyway. It's exciting because it means you can go to anybody from anywhere and say, doesn't matter what your past is like, doesn't matter how much you own, doesn't matter what school you've been to, doesn't matter how many certificates or qualifications you've got, doesn't matter all of that. Here's all you need to know. God wants you and loves you and has died for you and has called you. Hope has come. And it's come not just to certain stratas of society. It's come to us all. And so we can go out onto the streets and we can pray for people who are sitting as we walk outside at Sainsbury's in the high street. And we can go and say there is hope and hope has a name. And the name is Jesus. And you're not restricted from it. There is a universality of the gospel. And it's exciting. Isn't that exciting? Um, You know, uh, the survey of talking Jesus, um, we looked at church numbers and and what made up the church, said that um, over 70% of um, evangelicals in the UK are university educated and would tick a box that say they come from the middle classes or above which means somehow in our generations where God has upside down radically changed social strata, we have fantastically managed to turn it back around again. And so the massive places that are unchurched, unreached, that need us to go and and reach out and be radical and be incarnational are the places of poverty in the UK. The places of poverty in the UK are the places where the church needs to grow and develop and thrive and throw energy at. But we're not doing it. Some are, but as a body, we're not doing it. And I believe that in this new season, there's a radical call again to see every part of the nation reached with the gospel, not just the parts we feel comfortable in. Every part. Challenging stuff, James, isn't it? Challenging stuff. I don't really like it, obviously. It's too challenging to the way I live my life. Um, That's just the pain of the New Testament, isn't it? It's too challenging to the way we live our lives. We'd like to rip bits out of it from time to time. But there it is. God breathed it. God inspired it. Get used to it. Kind of thing. Um, Next slide. 
Then he goes on, just in case you're thinking, well, that's not bad, you know, a wee bit favoritism. You know, that's a kind of we sin on the list of sins. Because we don't mind that, don't we? We're always able to compare our sins with everybody else's. So, well, I gossiped a wee bit, but gossip's not that bad compared to murder. Right? Um, Or, well, I I maybe spoke out of turn there. Um, Tongue is a fire. And it kind of of burned my mouth, really talking about that. but it's not as bad as them. Look at them. Look what they did. Um, so we're always kind of rating our spirituality by looking at people who are less spiritual than ourselves. Amen? Is that just me that does that? I'm feeling really vulnerable at the front now. <laughs> Here's this thing in the tale from James. He says, you know, you, you break one law, you sin, you've broken them all. What? You break one, you've, you're sinful. You're going to need judgment and forgiveness. Um, the God has not put a kind of, here's a level 10 sin, here's a level 9. Oh, look, she's only committed three number twos. That's not too bad. Um, well, he's committed like eight number five sins. <laughs> he's gone, he's gone, kind of thing. All of them show a, a departing from God's will and God's heart. And so you break any of them, in a sense, you've broken them all in spirit. Oh, tricky, isn't it? This is not a light matter, is what James is saying. Um, You may think it's light the way you treat somebody who's come in. You may think that, that favoritism is not a bad, desperate thing. But I want to tell you, if you're living in such a way that is breaking Jesus' heart, it doesn't matter what other sins there are. You have committed a sin. And you will be judged for it. So Jesus is is trying to say, the love that the community of faith have is so significant, so important, got to be guarded, got to be cherished. That love that marks out the community of faith is so, so valuable. You've got to see this for what it is. Your attitude of heart towards others shines a light on your attitude of heart towards God. Challenging stuff. The way I treat somebody not like me who comes to me reveals something about my heart towards God. The God who loves me, fills me with love, calls me to be loving. If I'm not being loving, then it says something about how open I am to God. Our lives as community should be reflecting the welcoming wonder of God's heart. It's a miracle. And in the silence of this wee group, thinking, well, we're all going to be judged and stuff, he does, he does say that there is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is hope. If we confess our sins, then he is able and just and forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He's not saying that you finished. He's saying, take this seriously. And openly. Why is that really, really important? 
to us. So I want to kind of finish, uh, finish with this a little bit. Why is, why is this important? It's important because what was really happening was the culture of the world round about the church was becoming more influential in the church than the culture of Jesus. That's what was happening. This kind of alternative community, this miraculous bunch of people that Jesus has created by his death and resurrection and ascension was now being pressurized by a culture that was one of division. Men, women, status, no status for children, groups, Gentiles, Jews, rich, poor, and so it goes on and on. The whole society was one of favoritism and division. And this bunch of Christian people are becoming influenced, and somehow as they're becoming influenced, their distinction is ending. They're changing to become like the culture round about them. And James's whole uh, worry and concern is that the church is losing its distinctive edge. That that upside down revolution is being turned back round again by the culture round about. That is exactly the same challenge that we have in the Scotland of today. As the church, this kind of smaller and more marginalized bunch of people, seek to live out a distinctive Christian life, we find that people all around about us have a different set of values, a different life story, a different bigger story, a different set of things they think are important and significant. And bit by bit, it influences the church. And the church then has to make decisions almost subconsciously. It makes a decision. Do I want to be liked by the world? Or do I want to be a counter-cultural, radical people that stand up for stuff the world doesn't even understand? Am I willing to live the cost? Or would I rather be patted on the back by this culture in which we live? And we wrestle with that, and most of the time, I think we're failing. Because everybody wants to be liked, right? Everybody wants to fit in. Nobody wants to seem different. But here's the thing. If Jesus has called you, saved you, loves you, filled you with the Spirit, you are different. (laughs) You are different to the world. You are controlled by a spirit that is different to the world, by a set of values that are different to the world, by a hope that is different to the world, by a love that is different to the world. You are a different people. But we are called to live that radical difference. You think you're influenced by consumerism? Or does it stop outside of the community of faith? You think you're influenced by individualism? This is what I want. This is my idea. This is uh, my hope. I just wish he would shut up. I wish it was Ian that was speaking. I wish whatever, it's all about me, really, but I want it to be about God, but it's about me. Are we so different from the world round about us? Are our influences so different? If people were to look at you, for a week, would they say, wow, 
radical different type of values. Radical different. That's the calling that James felt the church had. He recognized that um, they mess up. So, hey, we can all be part of it. We mess up. We get it wrong. We live in forgiveness and in love. We're all very different. We have different stories, different gifts, different backgrounds, different intellects, all of these things. And yet, in the miracle of grace, we become one family. One family. Held together in the love of God, but called to live in such a way that those outside of it look at it and think, I want that. I want that. That's, that's the place where hope is and welcome is and love is and mercy is. I want that because I can't get it anywhere else. That's our calling. So we open our hearts to everybody. We reach out to all. We offer the free grace of Jesus wherever and wherever we can. And in humility, we say, God, come and change your city every part of it and so challenge us by the sorts of people that are encountering you that all things are changing and all bets are off wouldn't that be exciting would it be exciting if all sorts of different people started coming in with some really hard questions for us do we believe that's possible yeah i finish with this it's a new season we're past COVID, sort of. We're, uh, we're kind of moving into this area in church life in Scotland where we don't have a clue what we're doing. And so, well, Ian does, but people like me not got a clue what we're doing. Um, having to be more reliant upon the Holy Spirit, having to pray more, and having to wait and say, God, do something, because we can't do it. We can't do it. Um, you have to show up in power. It's the only answer only answer for Perth is a supernatural move of God. That's it. That's it. You put a full stop at the end of that. That's it. But God is moving in different ways. So I was down speaking in Stockport last week, and uh, this person came up to me and uh, said they'd become a Christian a few weeks ago. I thought, that's fantastic. You know, it's great. He wanted me to pray for them. I said, how did you, you know, did you go to an alpha? Of course. You know, it's almost the first thing you think of. Somebody's going to become a Christian now, isn't it? It's not, did a Christian speak to you? It's, oh, did you do an alpha course? And, um, and he said, uh, no. He said, um, I had a dream. I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw Jesus. And Jesus told me to go to a church. And I turned up at the church, and it was the church's prayer meeting. Didn't know what it was. He said, I don't know who to go a bigger shock. Them in the middle of the prayer meeting when I knocked on the door and came in, or me finding this bunch of people at prayer. And they said to me, what is it you want? He said, um, well, I had this dream, and I saw Jesus. He said, and you could look at a few strange faces going on and said, I need to know him. I need to know him. And he became a Christian that night. He's been going to church ever since. It's a new season. God is doing new things. And if we have our hearts open, and if we are a community of love and forgiveness and mercy and hope, 
we will see God do things that can only lead us to greater praise and adoration. Will you stand with me? I realize that this is a kind of challenging thing, and it's, it's challenging when we think about um, how we welcome people and, and what James is saying. But I also know that it's challenging for people who maybe feel they've been hurt by church. They, they feel you've been excluded or you've stood hoping that somebody was going to come and talk to you and nobody did. Or you've offered in a church to be involved and you've not been picked to be involved. And you felt on the edges, excluded. You still carry something of that with you. You kind of, when we talk about favoritism or the outsider, you think right away, I was the outsider. I was the outsider. And I was waiting on somebody coming to welcome me or or to invite me or to use my gifts and nobody came. And it may be that you feel even now, I still feel like a bit of an outsider. I I still feel so I'm not really fitting in. I I don't belong. I'm kind of trying to reach out and it just, just, is it something about me? I I don't kind of understand it. But you feel that, that somehow the church has hurt me and not treated me as well as it might have. And you carry the wounds of that. So just let's, let's pray. Let's just close our eyes together. I have a real sense there are people in this room and, and you carry the hurts and the wounds of church with you. And... Um, and if you do, would you really, really quickly just put your hand up just for a second so, so I can see if I'm praying for people. Thank you that at the wedding feast, we are all guests, all welcomed, that Jesus delights in all of us. And when we see him fully unrestricted face to face, we will know the love that he has for us fully thank you Jesus for your love thank you for the miracle of the church community thank you that we grow together we laugh together we cry together we are one family a local church and global church forgive us God if we have been slow to act slow to support slow to get alongside Forgive us and grant us grace, God. And if we still carry the wounds of what we've experienced in church in the past, with your help and by your spirit, will you enable us to move on and realize afresh that we are loved. We are loved. We are unique and we are loved. Children of God. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.